Hiya, Duncan Green here with the latest uh, uh, set of posts on From Poverty to Power. I carried on this week with another set of posts from the wonderful Bukavu series, which is a series of blogs from uh, researchers in the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, with some colleagues from Ghent University in Belgium. Um, and they explore what it is, what is the life of researchers in places like the Congo. And what you what emerges is that there is a kind of something akin to a sort of global apartheid system within the research world where local researchers from places like the Congo are at the bottom of the pecking order and they there are huge asymmetries of power and money and decision making which really damage their ability to get the most out of their research and I think damages the research as well. So a group of 30 of these uh, researchers have spent a couple of years talking to each other on, you know, you know, on occasion, producing these posts, which were turned into a series of French language posts. Um, they were then translated into English, and then the the project got a really brilliant Congolese research, um, cartoonist, Tembo Cash, to come in and illustrate some of the key themes. So I've been reposting some of those, and I, uh, it's been starting to pick up traffic as people have got back from holiday, and I'm hoping that it just helps boost the profile of what is a really excellent initiative, the Bukavu series. Check it out. So the first post this week um, was a couple of vignettes from the field, What's it, what it's actually like. So Eric Batumike uh, Banyanga talked about uh, having an armed guide imposed on you. So in 2018, when I was doing a study in Mukungwe in South Kivu, the parties to a local conflict each wanted me to show them what the other had said about them. I personally considered this impossible, as it would have exposed the people who had provided me with information. Sorry, slip of tea. But then my refusal to disclose my sources and the contents of our earlier conversations led to a situation in which I was entrusted to an armed guide the following day. The semi-official line from the non-state authority, the influential leader of a family of mine operators, who assigned me my escort, was that I would need a guide who could orient me in the local setting while also ensuring my security so that nothing bad would happen to me. However, on his first day with me, my guide wouldn't leave me alone to speak with the artisanal miners I was interviewing, which meant that my interlocutors didn't want to comment on certain questions. This reticence was due to a fear of reprisals, which could ensue after my departure. It was therefore necessary to change my mode of operation. I approached my guide and asked if he could leave me alone to talk with the miners so that they could speak to me objectively. He agreed to do this after a long negotiation. Well, actually, he agreed after being promised a monetary incentive. During subsequent interviews, he agreed to withdraw at the start of each conversation, and only then did my respondent start revealing important information to me. In this situation, I was lucky enough to be able to negotiate an elegant solution. I was able to respect the local authorities' wish to control some of my movements in the area, by respecting the presence of my spy guide. And at times his presence was even useful in directing me to the right places. But at the same time, I was able to negotiate his withdrawal during the actual interviews. Lovely. Um, and then next is a, a, a piece by Anwariti Bashizi, where um, Anwariti is talking about the egocentricity of field ethics. One day, while doing an interview with a woman in a village, I saw her dabbing her cheeks with a cloth to dry her tears. I understood right away that my interview had touched upon a subject that was sensitive for her. I wanted to ask for more details, but I didn't dare bring up another question. Without saying a word, she got up and went into her house. After about ten minutes, 
The woman came back from her house, her face still sad, and sat down next to me. She revealed to me what our discussion had released in her. Her story was marked by deep misery and poverty. After her last sentence, the woman sighed, raised her head, and while looking aside said, only the Lord can help us. I could feel her suffering, but I couldn't find any words to comfort her. I wanted to offer her some money, but I remembered that within the ethics guidelines, that risked being seen as buying data. And even if I intervened, what was I to do about the enormous needs and demands of the other interviewees whom I was meeting in the field every day? People who were just as poor as she was. Couldn't my helping some and not others easily raise frustrations amongst them? And wouldn't my conduct then put future researchers in a difficult position? The only thing I finally said was, keep strong, Mama. The Lord will take care of it indeed. After we parted, I felt a lot of guilt. This woman had shared information with me that would help me to write my thesis. But in the name of field research ethics, I hadn't given anything in return that would help her. She was in need and I had done nothing. A year later, I went back. I looked for her family but couldn't find it. And two years later, I found out that this woman's husband had died of tuberculosis. I collected my data in the midst of misery. That is a very powerful piece. Um, and, uh, you know, um, the, the sort of traumatic experiences um, of, of local researchers um, when dealing with this kind of thing. Next up is a piece by Emery Mudinga. We barely know these researchers from the South. Reflections on problematic assumptions about local research collaborators. And Emery says, I'd like to reflect on three main assumptions that are circulating concerning research assistants and collaborators from the South. First, research assistants are only interested in money. Well, not only is this assumption false, it adopts a simplistic and reductionist understanding of what research assistants actually aspire to. Sure, income is necessary and provides compensation for the work. But to reduce research assistants' motivation for seeking jobs to the money they earn reveals a misunderstanding of their true ambitions. My discussion with our assistant, as with many others, illustrates how they can see participating in research projects as an opportunity to move ahead in life. Research represents an opportunity to build or extend their networks, enhance their legitimacy in their field of interest, and improve their capacities in their profession. As a result, the money they earn, which in fact often arrives sporadically, is for many of them not the ultimate reason for collaboration. They, like many senior researchers, are driven by their passion and career ambitions. Second, research assistants aren't sufficiently proficient in academic writing. This is often raised by senior researchers to justify why they don't involve their collaborators and research assistants in co-authorship. However, even if this may be true to a certain extent, collaborative research should consider all stages of the research process as essential. And research assistants often do, part, often do participate in several stages of the research process. Preparatory workshops, designing data collection tools, contacting and mobilising actors in the field, gathering data, producing research reports, and sometimes sending additional information after the work is completed. One specific stage of the process, writing the publication, should not stand above all others. All roles in the academic process should be considered complementary. The assistant shouldn't be considered a liability in the knowledge production process. Third assumption, research assistants don't need to publish. In fact, their participation in publications could even place them in danger. Well, as one of our research assistants in Bukavu said, publishing improves our security and reduces the suspicions 
that our research profession our research profession raises in the community particularly for those of us who work in environments hold on a second yep particularly for those of us who work in environments characterized by a long history of conflict publishing opens up new opportunities for researchers being acknowledged in a publication can result in requests from media and NGOs to talk about their research or invitations to new collaborations. For example, one of our collaborators in northern Uganda saw his salary increase after co-publishing a blog in 2018 concerning the questionable treatment of research collaborators by senior researchers. Nice one. Okay. Final post, I think. Nope. Uh, next post, third post. North-South power differentials and competition in the research business. So this one is by Godfrey Muzalia. And this is sort of setting out the, 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 the blocks um, uh, in the research process. Collaborative research is committed to a division of labour. To summarise, two different blocks emerge from the power relationship that characterise the production of knowledge. The first block includes the donor, who provides the research funding, universities and or researchers from the Global North, and increasingly NGOs involved in action research in support of their interventions. The second block, which is more heterogeneous, is composed of researchers employed by universities and aspiring to academic careers, jobber researchers who do research mainly as a means of survival, and private or university affiliated research institutions. The role of this block is generally limited to the execution of research activities imposed by the first block and based on the instructions from its researchers or donors. The actors in the first block have access to research funding and usually have full control over the research process. They determine the code of conduct, the terms of reference, try to ensure that a minimum of the research object objectives is appropriated by recruited research assistants through short-term training programmes. The second block is composed of academic proletarians, great phrase, abandoned by their governments, which should in principle fund their research. They lack laboratories, research budgets, or easy access to the knowledge industry. They only have their brains and skills to offer to potential research partners. Their role is mainly limited to the mobilization of their know-how and social capital in order to get access to the field and collect data. In between is a Southern coordinator this is usually the one facilitating the connection between the two blocks and in regular contact with both the research donor or leader in the north and research assistants based in the south. This coordinator may be an individual or a local organisation. In addition to academic dividends, each partner enjoys a number of financial benefits from this process. But for all these benefits, it's the partners of the first block who determine the conditions of collaboration and the principles of division. During my eight years of experience, very few of them shared information about the budgets as approved by their donors. A portion of these budgets is allocated to the Southern Coordinator, who has to report expenses according to all the formats imposed by the research donors, which often aren't adapted to the realities of the field. Consequently, next to the fixed and formal standards, an alternative set of norms and practices develop that is in sharp contrast to ethical guidelines. So in practice, two different budgets coexist. The one agreed with the donor, with which the financial report has to be aligned, and another much more flexible and more practical one, which takes into account the realities of the field. This has become standardised practice with the involvement of international NGOs. 
These NGOs invest huge resources, fees, field work, per diems, facilitation fees. Consequently, all the actors involved in the research process want to have a share of the benefits locally called by the euphemism research indicators. This is a new one to me. So a researcher working for a local organisation put it this way. Our organisation is often co-opted by intermediaries for surveys in conflict-affected areas. But the selection of the people who do the fieldwork is not done at random. They must be in a position to give indicators, the financial compensation, um, to the programme officer of the intermediary organisation. In other words, part of the salary being paid to research assistants returns to those who recruited them. That's pretty shocking, if that's as widespread as uh, uh, Godfrey um, uh, claims. Final post of the uh, of the week on similar to similar topics, remunerating researchers from the global south, a source of academic prostitution? Question mark by LSA Sehusa. While researchers from the global north are granted a guaranteed salary, risk funds, and various forms of insurance, the same cannot be said for research assistants. The remunerative discrepancy between these two groups is a form of discrimination. It creates an imbalance between researchers from the Global North and those from the Global South, even as the two groups work together. Besides salary, there's also a question of working conditions. A lack of adequate financial resources for organising one's work and tackling unforeseen challenges can make research activities very difficult indeed. Academic institutions do not always take into account the various unpredictable expenses a research assistant or collaborator may face while in the field. In 2018, sorry, researcher projects in the Global South often take place in impoverished, unstable and conflict-ridden areas. The presence of researchers in such zones can give rise to increased financial demands. In 2018, a group of us carried out a study with a female researcher from the Global North examining the revaluation of traditional music. While we recorded songs with traditional harpists, several inhabitants of the village of Sifuma showed up to the activity without having been invited. After the recording session, this audience demanded compensation. They heckled to the point of throwing stones at us and shouted, we also participated in this activity, you have to pay us. If not, at least buy some banana beer, you've got the money. Calming this crowd down proved very difficult and our departure took place under a great deal of stress. These conditions place the research assistant in a vulnerable and precarious position in which he or she must improvise, take risks with regard to personal security and still manage to deliver field reports within the fixed timeline set by a given academic enterprise. In some cases, in the event of an unforeseen difficulty, a researcher's life may even be put at risk because he or she has not been given the resources to resort to a plan B for safety or to escape from a dangerous situation in the field. Certain NGOs do, however, give their researchers a security envelope to allow them to deal with kidnappers. In 2013, a fellow researcher travelling to Masisi in North Kivu to carry out a study about displacement. At the time, there was a conflict underway between the Batembo and the Ban Banyawanda, and due to an inadequate analysis of the local security situation, he nearly died. The local leader who was showing him around was killed in these clashes. Having to work in such conditions may at times drive researchers to deceit. Sometimes they may provide poor quality data when combining several studies for different employers. In other cases, a research assistant may be tempted into inventing false data, lacking the courage to collect the actual material given the difficult conditions encountered. When one feels disrespected, underpaid and isolated, 
One may lose one's sense of pride in one's work as a researcher, instead succumbing to a purely functional attitude that treats the job as just another way to earn a few cents. Academic and research institutions must take the lead in improving the remuneration of researchers from the Global South by taking into account the complexities and risks that arise in the field. They must understand that better remuneration will improve the quality of results, strengthen the local researchers' social security and stability, and also create an alternative for managing the requirements of the field. There is so much in these posts. I mean, anybody thinking about how to design better research programmes in places like the DRC would get an extraordinary agenda just by reading through these posts and thinking, OK, how do we design the funding? How do we design the reporting? How do we value and promote local researchers uh, and get better results as a whole? And uh, I really hope people do uh, read this Bukavu series quite carefully because it's very, very full of brilliant analysis. And on that note, have a great weekend and I shall talk to you next week. Bye.